A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Friday, October 28th, 2022, the 646th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. You'll be supporting me and the work I do and the show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to continue listening to the show on a wide variety of platforms, all I ask is that you share it with your friends. Now, before we begin, indulge me as I set the mood. Oh, 
Love the smell of napalm in the morning, and it has smelled like napalm since last night. Elon Musk got promptly to work after taking over Twitter and immediately fired CEO Parag Agrawal, CFO Ned Siegel, General Counsel Sean Edgett, and the legal lead of Twitter. Vijaya Gotti. These are the people most responsible for the censorship regime at Twitter. And Vijaya Gotti in particular is credited with being the person who made the decision to ban Donald Trump while he was the sitting president of the United States of America. And those firings, that act has sent shockwaves through the media and through the community of the Blue and On Twitter activists and journalists who have made themselves popular and famous and wealthy and powerful by exploiting the fact that that platform had the ability to decide which Americans were allowed to speak in the public space and what they were allowed to say. And the reaction has honestly been hilarious. There is a total meltdown on that side of things and more on our side of things. It's like a block party. Everybody just walks outside of their house and pops a beer. And a few minutes later, everyone's having the best time imaginable. People are using their newfound freedom of speech to say all of the true things that they've been afraid to say for a while. And all of that is very good, but I wouldn't be me if I did not mention the fact that their excitement over their free speech really does say something about how they've approached the last two plus years. People prioritized staying on that platform over simply telling the truth. And when that phenomenon replicates across a platform as large as Twitter that has such a domineering place in our public conversation, you can kind of see how we got here. Now, the blame falls largely on the censorship regime, but the people who have silenced themselves in order to continue participating in Twitter because they felt like it drove their business or kept them in good standing with polite society, or they were simply addicted to the platform and to the attention. Well, they were part of the problem. They accepted their ownership. They accepted their servility. 
And I don't want to shame them or bully them, but I do hope that they learn this important lesson. You can't just sit around while other people's free speech is being taken away as you continue to benefit from what the censors are providing. That's how we end up with people like Ben Shapiro becoming the dominating forces within our society. And I think I covered that pretty thoroughly on Wednesday, but I do want to make one more remark about Ben Shapiro, because in that podcast, he admitted that he had been lied to two years ago. And he also admitted unwittingly that neither he nor his doctor wife ever checked. They just never checked to find out if the received information from the authoritative source just might be wrong. They told people that they were conspiracy theorists. They decided that they were the gatekeepers of information, but they don't want you to realize that they don't want you to realize that they never checked. In fact, Ben Shapiro kept supporting the vaccine on some level because you can criticize the vaccine and still be Ben Shapiro, but you can't say what the vaccine really is and still be Ben Shapiro because then you'll get in trouble. Ben Shapiro is not some icon of free speech and free thought. He actually said in that podcast that it was still a good idea for these people to get vaccinated or those people to get vaccinated. Old people, people with immune conditions, they should still do it. That's what the data says. Hey, Ben, that's the same data from the same people who already lied to you about the data, dummy. And once you realize that, you can see what he's doing. He's just scaling it back just a little bit. Still wants to be the gatekeeper. Still wants to be the one that tells everyone what to think. And I bring this up because this is a trend that you are going to be seeing all over the place. As people realize that the narratives they've been propagating over the last few years simply aren't true. They're going to just walk it back piece by piece. Hey, gang, just an update. I want to tell you I was wrong about another thing. I was lied to again. Can you believe it? This is going to be a pattern because now the truth is coming out and Twitter can't stop it. And little by little, each and every one of those false narratives is going to be systematically destroyed. But the Ben Shapiro's of the world, the never Trumpers, the blue anon journalists, the very serious intellectuals, they're not going to have that really important thought. The really important thought is, hey, if I came to this conclusion by respecting false authority, what other bad conclusions did I arrive at from the same process? What if I was actually completely wrong about everything the entire time? They're not going to do that. They don't even want free speech on Twitter because people like Ben Shapiro benefit from the censorship, even though they would claim they're the ones being censored. And I want to be clear. I'm not saying that Ben Shapiro is never censored never shadow banned, that his content is never reduced in the feeds. I'm not saying that. 
I'm saying you can't have a massive national platform if your number one focus is telling the difficult truths that the society clearly does not want spread. And it's probably worth noting that Ben Shapiro is all for Kanye West being censored. But there are a lot of people who are reliant on the censorship regime, and I'm beginning to see a certain conversation emerge, particularly among people who imagine themselves to be right of center, but wholly invested in the establishment. They're beginning to talk about the proper scope of content moderation. Everybody knows it can't just be a free for all, but actually It can be a free-for-all, and it should be a free-for-all. And if you can't protect yourself from free speech, perhaps participation in the public conversation is not for you. People are going to say things you disagree with. People are going to say mean things about you. The solution isn't to appeal to authority, to beg for rules about who can say what, The solution is to grow a spine and stop caring about what other people think. So much of social media is nothing more than public reputation management, which a lot of people treat as their job. And that makes complete and total sense in the party of false decorum, the way they ascend the ladder of status and power and wealth in society is by impressing the people above them with their good behavior. They want to be seen as the best behaved, and so they will manage their reputation online all day by calling out all the bad people and saying all the good things. The proper amount of censorship is zero censorship. And I know, I know, there are words that no one likes hearing and reading. There are things that we wish no one thought or said. But people do think those things and people do say those things and we can find it totally objectionable, but still understand that the most important right we can have is the freedom of thought and the freedom of speech. We need to stop pretending that these tiny marginal fringes with these objectionable viewpoints are somehow about to take over society, even though they have absolutely no power to do so. Their offensive words and their objectionable ideas are just suddenly going to be agreed with by everyone? Of course not. That's not going to happen. There's no risk of that happening. There's no way to get everyone to believe and accept false points of view Unless those false points of view are handed down from systems of power and authority and attached to incentive structures and punishment structures. There's an entire cottage industry on Twitter right now of blue and on journalists in quotes posting that everyone is saying the N word. And this is what's happened. Elon Musk bought Twitter and now everyone says the N word. Taylor Lorenz said that the gates of hell have been opened. People like Rob Reiner are concerned that the fascists and the authoritarians are back. And it's just so comically stupid. What sort of regime in world history was comprised of only the most vulnerable members of society 
but still had the power to censor everybody. Censorship is one of the first signs of authoritarian dictatorships in illegitimate regimes. If it was anywhere other than the United States, all of this would have been obvious from day one. And of course, it was obvious from day one. But in our society, we don't believe those things can happen to us because the people who create culture in our society are the ones doing all that. They're the authoritarians. They're the communists. They're the fascists. They're the ones who advertise socialism while supporting Nazis in Ukraine in order to control the means of information, the flow of information and the censorship. You have to be in power. It cannot be another way. And so when you see these centrist rhinos and never Trumpers and very serious intellectuals begin talking about the extent of content moderation that's appropriate, understand that they are just the diet version of the censorship regime and they are feeling their own power threatened. What do you think it is that they might be scared of? They're scared of the truth. They're scared of being exposed as the liars and the frauds and the gatekeepers that they are. Otherwise, there's no reason to be afraid of free speech. And of course, the most pathetic thing is that they're all doing this in the guise of needing to protect marginalized communities. Hey, commies, there cannot be a more marginalized community than the community of people the regime has censored. That is just blatant and obvious proof of systemic oppression in the worst way. And hopefully, as the conversation at the kids' table, which is Twitter, grows to be more adult, maybe we can see through this little smokescreen where the woke, where the communists are always pretending to protect other people. They're not protecting other people. They're protecting themselves and they're using the marginalized, the vulnerable as their human shields. If they were actually protecting other people, how come it's never worked? How come they're not actually improving anyone's lives? How come they're making everyone's lives so much worse? They are crying nonstop. Over the jobs of people like Vijay Gotti, who I'll get to in a second, who made $17 million last year. A whole team of Twitter software engineers was fired today. And we're weeping and weeping for their loss. Joe Biden just canceled 11,000 jobs in one day, shutting down the Keystone Pipeline. The regime canceled millions and millions of jobs, destroyed millions and millions of businesses and families so they could use the very deadly pandemic to implement the Great Reset. And none of them batted an eye. In fact, the censorship regime at Twitter is what supported that devastating loss, that grave moral and political and scientific failure in all its parts. And we get the sob stories about how everyone should care so much. An entire culture of social media addicted narcissists 
is losing its collective mind because they have this sense somewhere inside them about what's coming. They all believe that they are entitled to control the conversation because they have for so long. They made their careers on the censorship regime and what it allows. The same people who were saying that the Hunter Biden laptop should be suppressed before the 2020 election are now losing it because free speech has returned, at least to some degree, on Twitter ahead of the 2022 midterms because they're entitled to have the regime's people in office. We're really supposed to believe that these people care about free and fair elections. One person, one vote. They don't care about the will of the people. They won't even protect the voice of the people. These people are as evil as any Throughout history, in the worst regimes throughout history, these people are that evil. They are that committed to censorship. They are that committed to oppressing their political opposition. And in order to regain their foothold, they are complaining on Twitter of all places. Hey, maybe if we complain on Twitter enough, maybe if we whine extra hard this time, Elon will make it go away. He'll get rid of all the no-no people because he realizes how no-no they are. These whiny little babies. So Elon Musk has stated that he's going to put together a council to discuss the scope of content moderation. And as I mentioned, I think that this is a terrible idea. The amount of content moderation that should exist is zero. Let the community handle it for themselves. If you don't like what someone says, don't follow them or block them. Poof, gone. But that's not good enough. You have to be able to make decisions for everyone. (laughs) Nothing authoritarian about that. Elon has said that no reinstatements will happen until that council meets. And maybe he's just toying with the narrative. Maybe the council has already met. I hope we see those reinstatements soon. If we don't, the trust in Elon Musk as a custodian of the public conversation is going to reduce to zero pretty quickly. But for now, Elon Musk is just a very, 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 very bad guy. And the communists are all declaring that somehow he is a white nationalist and he's subverting democracy. The return to free speech is the end of our democracy. It'll be January 6th every day from here on out. Politicians are being attacked in their homes. Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, who has somehow remained a free man despite his drunk driving and insider trading, was supposedly attacked in the Pelosi home in San Francisco, which is gated and has tons of security cameras. Some MAGA extremist got into his house and attacked him with a hammer. That's the big story of the day. And everyone needs to discuss it on Twitter now. But don't worry, the totally unaccountable Capitol Police are going to investigate it. Thank goodness Nancy Pelosi set up an office of the Capitol Police in California last year. Her very own unaccountable 
Praetorian Guard is going to handle the whole situation. They'll get to the bottom of it in no time. And in the meantime, they're just going to drip out one little detail after the next. Just keep it going. Let everybody argue about each and every detail. And as time passes, people are going to lose interest. And over that time, the central narrative will just be accepted because it's not worth arguing about. We already argued about each and every point. And sure, some people have proved each and every point false and absurd. But that doesn't matter because in totality, everyone will just understand, well, something must have happened. And so we got to take the TV's point of view on this. And you can't FOIA the Capitol Police. So we're just going to have to take their word for it. And what timing, a perfect story of MAGA extremist violence. Coming out just 11 days before Nancy Pelosi loses power forever. Isn't that incredible? So it's up to Elon Musk and the Content Moderation Council to figure out who gets to come back on the platform and whether or not Donald Trump will come back on the platform. Elon's getting all sorts of threats that if he lets Donald Trump back onto the platform, All the advertisers are going to go running as if he cares. He already said he wasn't trying to make money on Twitter. It is such an idle and stupid threat, but they're going to go with it. And so as they're contemplating this decision, let's take a look back at the person primarily responsible for removing Donald Trump and for running the censorship regime. Her name is Vijaya Gotti. This is from opindia.com. As censor chief Vijaya Gotti is fired, read how Twitter had refused to take down child porn, even as victims' parents begged for its removal. Ladies and gentlemen, Vijaya Gotti. On Friday, October 28th, the head of legal policy, trust, and safety at Twitter, Vijaya Gotti, was booted out of service by the company's new owner, Elon Musk. Gotti, who spent 11 years at the social media giant, had earned the distinction of being the censor chief of Twitter. She was responsible for terminating the Twitter account of U.S. President Donald Trump and killing the Hunter Biden story, which impacted voting in the 2020 U.S. elections. And if you recall, just a week or so after that election, surveys showed that potentially 16 percent of Biden voters would have voted for Trump if they had known the Hunter laptop story was true. But back to the article. During her tenure, Twitter failed to remove videos of child sexual abuse despite repeated requests by the minor victim and his parents. And they link to a thread by the account at Eliza BLEU, Eliza Blue on Twitter. Reminder, a 13-year-old minor survivor begged Twitter to remove a video sexually exploiting him. Twitter reviewed the content and said no. They had his government ID showing that he was a minor at the time. The video had over 160,000 views, over 2,000 retweets. The Department of Homeland Security had to step in to get Twitter to remove the video. Twitter refused to take responsibility. The lawsuit is headed to the Ninth Circuit. And she goes further into the story. Sources are cited, articles in major publications all about this. In 2021, a 17-year-old boy, alias John Doe, filed a lawsuit against Twitter 
for not removing two child pornography videos featuring him, despite multiple requests to the social media giant. The victim informed us that the videos were shot when he was just 13 years old. He accused Twitter of allowing the dissemination of disturbing videos and profiteering from his traumatic experience. The teen had alleged that sex traffickers posing as a 16 year old female classmate had lured him for a chat on Snapchat. After exchanging nude photos with the traffickers, he was subjected to blackmail. The accused had coerced him into sending more sexually graphic images and videos by threatening to send the nude images to his pastor, coach and parents. The victim was made to include another child in sexual acts. This sounds straight out of that episode of Black Mirror, but even worse and obviously worse because it's real. Eventually, he mustered the courage to block the traffickers. Later in 2019, the videos of his abuse surfaced on Twitter. They were reported several times to the moderation team, which refused to take them down. Meanwhile, the victim was subjected to bullying and harassment by his classmates over his child abuse videos. After several requests, Twitter responded to the victim and claimed that the two videos were not in violation of the company's policies. It was only after a formal complaint to the Department of Homeland Security that Twitter acted against the user that posted the videos. In August 2022, The Verge reported how Twitter was planning to start a subscription model for adult content creators along the lines of OnlyFans. At that time, a team of 84 Twitter employees pointed out how the social media giant lacked tools to identify potentially harmful sexual content. Twitter cannot accurately detect child sexual exploitation and non-consensual nudity at scale, they concluded. Interestingly, the social media giant was quick to terminate the accounts of those individuals who questioned the efficacy of COVID-19 vaccines and the mainstream narrative about the pandemic. Human trafficking survivor advocate Eliza, that's who I was just referencing earlier, had documented several cases where Twitter had failed to protect minor victims of child abuse. In May last year, a Russian court fined Twitter for failing to delete illegal content, including posts related to child pornography, drug abuse information, and calls for minors to commit suicide, which was highlighted by the Russian telecom regulator. With Gaddy's ouster and Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter, users are looking forward to drastic changes in moderation policy and prevention of dissemination of child pornography on social media platforms. And I guess that remains to be seen. But Vidya Gotti is the person who oversaw this, and she is a hero of the people still on Twitter supporting Twitter's crumbling censorship regime. Now, Vidya Gotti was placed in her position at Twitter by a man named Alexander McGillivray. And here's some background on him. This is from his bio on the website of the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. This is from March of 2020. Alexander McGillivray is Twitter's general counsel and also leads its corporate communication, public policy, and trust and safety efforts. Prior to Twitter, Mr. McGillivray was deputy general counsel for products and IP at Google and a litigator with Wilson, Sincini, Goodrich, and Rosati. He received his JD from Harvard Law School and is an affiliate at Harvard's Berkman Center for Internet and Society. But let's go a little further. This is from late 2021. 
Alexander McGillivray, a technology law and policy expert, has rejoined the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy to serve as principal deputy U.S. chief technology officer. He said in a tweet that growing the team of technologists at OSTP will be his top priority. McGillivray previously served as deputy U.S. CTO, chief technology officer, during the Obama administration. In this role, he worked with then-CTO Megan Smith with a focus on key priority areas, including the intersection of big data, privacy, and technology and internet policy. Prior to joining the government, McGillivray served as general counsel at Twitter and deputy general counsel at Google. So Vidya Gotti was put into her position at Twitter by a man who was in the Obama administration and is now in the Biden administration. And the woman he put in that role censored the president of the United States of America while he was president, just banned him right off the platform in order to prevent another very violent insurrection. And she killed the Hunter Biden laptop story and she runs the censorship regime. It's really important to remember, thinking back about 2020, thinking about big pharma's role and the media's role. That by and large, society would not have accepted any of the narrative about the coronavirus if it weren't for the propaganda and the censorship. The whole thing would have never worked without all that. Think for yourself how long it took for you to realize that the lockdowns wouldn't work and could only be a disaster. Think for yourself about how long it took you to realize that masks didn't work and were pointless. Would anyone have believed that a vaccine was necessary for a disease that only could potentially kill one out of every thousand people who got it, all of them advanced in age with an average of four significant comorbidities? Would anyone have believed that a police officer murdered George Floyd as an act of racism, even though the coroner reports and the medical reports say that George Floyd died of a fentanyl overdose? Would anyone have believed that the BLM Antifa riots were mostly peaceful protests and that the protesters should be bailed out of jail? Would anyone have accepted mail-in ballots and ballot harvesting? Would anyone have believed that Joe Biden could somehow get 81 million real legal American votes from his basement? Would anyone believe in the very violent insurrection? And the answer over and over and over again is, of course not. Vidya Gotti and the censorship regime at Twitter enabled all of that to become a reality. And the cost of that is trillions upon trillions of dollars millions of lives taken and destroyed, and a crumbling society being ushered into a global communist order. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's a system. The parts work in the way they're supposed to work, and they produce the results they're meant to produce. And while Vidya Gotti might not be in the top 10 of the people most responsible for the situation we find ourselves in, She might be in the top 100. Can't be a whole lot more than that. Let's hear a little bit more about her work at Twitter. This is an interview that Vidya Gotti did at NYU Law School. We have found that 
the longer I've been in this role, and I've been general counsel for almost four years, I don't really feel like a lawyer anymore. Um, I, I still advise on legal issues, but it's more that I have a lot of experts that work on my team who are at the top of their field, and they give like the strong legal advice, and I help translate that legal advice to how we should be running the business. So it's a strategy job. Yes, yes. So what, what is it about you as a person, or about your training, or about your employment experience that gave you the qualities to do this job, which sounds more like statesmanship than lawyering? I wish I could say I could point to one thing. I, I really can't. What I'll say is working at a firm for a really long time it gave me a very broad experience with a lot of different companies. I saw companies go through all sorts of transitions, whether it was private to public or um, you know, how to get your first round of financing, how to get acquired, how to acquire another company, integrate it. So I saw a lot of companies go through these big periods in their lives. Um, I helped advise them through those. And then I also just paid a lot of attention once I got to Twitter and I learned a lot. And I had really great bosses who gave me the chance to grow into the role. I can honestly say there's no one that felt more unqualified in upon taking a GC role than I did when I got into Twitter. I was horrified. I was like, oh my god, they trust me to do this job. It was a very scary moment because I had never done this job before. I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know what it would take. Um, and I had really supportive people, both in terms of the people I worked for, my board of directors, as well as my team who was there to help me um, because I couldn't be an expert in everything. I was a corporate lawyer for 12 years, and then I was expected to be able to advise on employment issues, international law issues, free speech issues, content issues, copyright issues, patent issues. I didn't even know most of those areas in any detail. Um, there she is, the woman who got to decide who can talk and what they're allowed to say. So I feel pretty safe in saying that even if Elon Musk is not creating the ideal situation now, absolutely nothing could possibly be worse than that. It sounds like she was only implementing other people's decisions. And who were those people? Twitter is basically a piece of the intelligence apparatus. The organization was filled with former law enforcement officials and former intel officials. And I imagine we're going to learn a whole lot more about Twitter in the coming days and weeks. Now, let's switch gears to a totally verboten topic, at least as far as Twitter is concerned, until yesterday. Election fraud. This is from the Epoch Times yesterday. Wisconsin judge hands win to Republicans over mail-in ballot lawsuits. A judge in Wisconsin on Wednesday rejected a request to allow election officials to count mail-in ballots with incomplete addresses on them. Dane County Circuit Judge Nia Trammell refused a request from the League of Women Voters, a group that sought a temporary injunction and argued it would, quote, upend the status quo and not preserve it, frustrate the electoral process by causing confusion, and said her court doesn't want to add to the confusion by issuing a temporary injunction with just two weeks to go before the 2022 midterms, reported the Associated Press. I believe that voters catching snippets of the court's decision from local media or by word of mouth could reasonably conclude that markings made by their witnesses on the witness certification portion of the absentee ballot would suffice in any shape or form, Trammell said. 
according to the Wisconsin State Journal. A higher court could potentially disagree. And if that is the case, then there is a risk that such voters absentee ballots would not be counted in the upcoming election. The ruling was a win for the Republican controlled Wisconsin legislature, which intervened in the lawsuit. The case focused on how much of the address of a witness needs to be included on an absentee ballot certificate in order for the ballot to be counted. The Wisconsin Elections Commission previously said that an address must include three elements, a street number, street name and municipality. In a lawsuit filed in October, the League of Women Voters of Wisconsin asked the court to declare that a missing address on a mail-in ballot means only that the address field is left entirely blank. But no court has ever issued an order defining missing as it is used in that provision of the law, Trammell said Wednesday in blocking the group's request. If she agreed with the league, the ruling would be quickly appealed and possibly overturned, which would result in ballots being tossed that were submitted by voters who thought their witness signatures were sufficient, Trammell said. Since the 2020 election, the Wisconsin legislature has passed a number of election integrity bills that make it harder to vote via mail-in ballots. They've all been vetoed by Governor Tony Evers, a Democrat who is up for re-election next month and is facing off in a tightly contested race against Republican Tim Michaels. Ahead of the November general election, more than 510,000 mail-in ballots have been requested by the state of Wisconsin, of which about 305,000 have been returned, according to data provided by the Wisconsin Elections Commission. During early voting on Tuesday, some 33,000 people voted in person, the data shows. This election cycle, meanwhile, the Republican National Committee has filed 73 election-related lawsuits, announced RNC Chair Ronna McDaniel. Last week, a court in Michigan also found that Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson updated an election manual to impose new restrictions on poll observers and challengers without using the right rulemaking process. And earlier this month, Republicans filed a lawsuit against Pennsylvania officials who said they will accept mail-in ballots without dates. And of course, we just talked yesterday about how Pennsylvania had already sent out 240,000 ballots to people whose identities were unverified. Now, it's good that the courts are enforcing the law, but that shouldn't be seen as a win for the GOP. And it's kind of incredible that it's being framed that way. Again, what does it say that all of these errors, all of these tricks, these little attempts at sleight of hand, all directly affect one side to the benefit of the other side, and the sides are always the same? How exactly does that work if Democrats aren't trying to cheat? And of course, they are trying to cheat. And in many places, they're being helped by Republican officials people with little R's next to their name, who despite that little R, that means virtually nothing, are absolutely corrupt and complicit in election fraud. But there's more. This is from Wednesday in Just the News. The headline is, Democrat blows whistle on alleged ballot harvesting scheme. Florida opens criminal probe. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's new election crimes unit has recommended state police open a full criminal investigation into a Democrat whistleblower's detailed complaint of a long running, widespread ballot harvesting operation in the African-American communities in politically important central Florida. 
Former Orange County Commissioner candidate Cynthia Harris filed a sworn affidavit in late August with the Secretary of State's office, alleging that illegal operations to collect third party ballots have been going on for years in the Orlando area, where voting activists are paid $10 for each ballot they collect. Oh, wow. That sounds exactly like 2000 mules. That sounds exactly like what my friend Brian Lupo at the Gateway Pundit, better known as CanCon, exposed a couple of weeks ago in Texas. She described an intricate system funded by liberal leaning organizations that dispatch ballot brokers into black communities to pressure voters to turn over their ballots. The $10 fee per ballot is divvied up among the parties who help complete the harvesting. The collection and delivery of ballots by third parties is illegal in Florida. Now, how long have I been saying that Democrats are obviously stealing the votes of black Americans in urban communities years now? And why was I saying that? Because it was so blatantly obvious that black Americans would not continue to vote for the candidates that are destroying their communities. It has always been absolutely ridiculous for Democrats to claim election after election that they were receiving 95% of the black vote. And of course they weren't. And think about the circular logic they've always used to justify this. Black voters will always vote for Democrats because Democrats are the party fighting racism. And as proof that the Democrats are the party fighting racism, they always cite the 95% support among black Americans. Now, it should be pretty obvious to everyone by now. That the Democrats are not the party fighting racism. In fact, the Democrat Party has always been the party of racism, the party of the KKK, the party of slavery, the party of Jim Crow, the party of urban decay. That's the Democrat Party. The Democrat Party literally used to use the KKK to prevent black voters from voting Republican. They claim all that changed when Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act. That was the old switcheroo. And even though Joe Biden's political mentor, Robert Byrd, who was a Klan leader who mentored Joe Biden in politics for three plus decades, filibustered the Civil Rights Act, none of that mattered because a Democrat president signed the Civil Rights Act. And in the process, he said, I'll have those N words voting Democrat for the next 200 years. But from that point on, the Democrats had the black vote. How did it happen? And how was Lyndon B. Johnson so accurate in his prediction? 200 years sounds like maybe an overestimation. I don't think we're going to get there. I think that streak is pretty much over. But for 60 years, Democrats have systematically stolen the black vote while decimating black communities. It has always only ever been that way. The newly created Office of Election Crimes and Security did a preliminary inquiry on Harris's allegations and concluded there was sufficient evidence to warrant a full criminal probe by the state police. The Florida State Department told Just the News on Wednesday, the Florida Department of State 
Office of Election Crimes and Security was made aware of this issue around September 1st, 2022, the department said. After further inquiry, OECS received additional information related to the allegation on October 17th, 2022, and performed a preliminary investigation. Since OECS is an investigative entity and does not have authority to make arrests, the office forwarded the complaint to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement for possible violation of Section 104.0616 Florida statutes, it added. The Florida Department of Law Enforcement told Just the News on Thursday that it has received a complaint regarding alleged ballot harvesting in Orange County, which is currently under review to determine if an investigation is warranted. The development in Florida adds an explosive new allegation to concerns nationwide that ballot trafficking is widespread in some battleground states, a claim made famous by the research of the conservative watchdog group True the Vote and a documentary released earlier this year by filmmaker Dinesh D'Souza called 2000 Mules. And it's worth noting that this problem does not just exist in swing states. Arizona prosecutors have achieved several convictions in that state for ballot harvesting, most recently securing the guilty plea of a former Democrat mayor in Yuma County. True the Vote filed a complaint in Georgia, alleging thousands of ballots were harvested in the 2020 election, but those allegations have not yet been corroborated as authorities negotiate with the nonprofit group for its evidence. A Wisconsin investigation unmasked a sophisticated ballot harvesting effort targeting vulnerable nursing home patients in communities like Racine, Wisconsin. Harris, who narrowly lost her election for county commissioner in August, described to Just the News her years-long knowledge of ballot harvesting in the black communities in central Florida. She even recorded a ballot broker coming to her home in 2017 to collect her ballot and obtained the script that harvester was given by her bosses to make the pitch for a voter to turn over their ballot. So what happens is in our community when absentee ballots are mailed, you, the candidate or any political party can find out when these absentee ballots are mailed and to whom. What happens is these ballot harvesters, they know which batch has gone out. They go to the door and they ask you for your absentee ballot. Harris told the Just the News No Noise television show on Wednesday night. Well, in communities that don't look like me, no one does this, she said, referring to white neighborhoods. But in our community, it's kind of like an accepted practice that the man is coming by to pick up my absentee ballot or the lady is coming to pick up my absentee ballot. In her sworn affidavit, Harris identifies specific individuals who direct and act as ballot brokers and were paid to collect ballots and provides intricate details on how the system allegedly works, along with emails, receipts, video footage and other evidence. And that's incredible, isn't it? Think about when you hear stories about donors like George Soros injecting 10 million more dollars into this race or that race. What do you think that money's for? We're always told it was for TV ads. But really, TV ads are what decide elections? Certainly not in 2022. Ballot brokers typically work up to a year in advance, she stated. Ballot brokers visit individuals in their residences and assist the individual with filling out a request for a mail-in ballot. After the mail-in ballot arrives, the voter is instructed to wait for the ballot broker to return to the individual's residence. They are asked not to seal the certificate envelope. 
In rare circumstances, if the voter has filled out the ballot and sealed the envelope certificate, the ballot broker will take the ballot and then steam open the sealed envelope, the affidavit added. The ballot broker will either correct any votes, if necessary, that were not voted according to their wishes, or just throw them out. Harris described how, much as in Wisconsin, vulnerable patients in rehabilitation centers and nursing homes in Florida were targeted for ballot trafficking. For nursing homes, ballot brokers get the list of residents by cross-referencing the address with the voter registration list, she explained. The ballot broker figures out the best way to make contact, usually through friends and family that may or may not know they are even part of a scheme. They help the resident fill out the mail-in ballot or just take the mail-in ballot from the nursing home and deliver it to the ballot broker. Harris, who has worked as an election poll worker in the past, said her biggest concern in coming forward is that ballots collected by third parties have no chain of custody, making it easier to commit fraud, such as destroying a ballot or altering it. And that might explain why places like Arizona don't have chain of custody records for 400,000 ballots from the 2020 election or how the same was true in Georgia for hundreds of thousands of ballots. You know, it's just utterly ridiculous that people don't understand that once that ballot leaves your hand and it's not placed in the mailbox or it's not directly given to the supervisor of elections, you don't know where it goes, she said. It's possible that they throw them away. We've seen evidence of that. You see them steam open the ballots and then they mismark them so that if it's not for their candidate, then that ballot is spoiled. So when people think that the numbers are low, it's really not low. It's just that someone is intercepted before it gets to the proper authorities. Harris alleges that the Orange County Supervisor of Elections, who has held the office for 26 years, has turned a blind eye to ballot harvesting in her community. Isn't that amazing? I wonder if that's how she's kept her job for so long. Is that a legitimately seated public official? No. It's someone who's happy to violate the voting rights of Americans. It's someone who's happy to help skew American elections. That is a criminal who's committed crimes against America. That is complete and total corruption. And who are they helping? Well, it's not MAGA. This has been going on for so long. You have to look at the supervisor of elections himself. He's been there since 1996. That's 26 years that this has been a blind eye turned on our community, the people that we entrust in the fair elections in the democratic process. It has been flawed for a long time because this only happens in our community. It happens all over the nation, but we are the ones that suffer from it because we're the most disenfranchised. We don't have the resources to fight back, and we don't know how to fight back by telling our story. The Office of Orange County Supervisor of Elections, Bill Cowles, said in a response to a request for comment regarding Harris's claim that he is, quote, not aware of any issues regarding ballot harvesting. So he is, quote, unable to comment on that at this time. The office added that if there are any issues that Harris is concerned about, we would recommend her filing a complaint with the state for investigation. After voting ended in the August primary, Harris was in second place with a total of 3,158 votes on election night, which was supposed to trigger a runoff election because the candidate with the most votes didn't receive 51% of the votes. There was supposed to be a recount, according to Harris, but somehow, quote, she kept losing votes instead of gaining votes. So when they certified the votes, I had a total of 14 votes missing. 
I know how to do basic math. I don't understand how you could go down in numbers versus going up. But the story that they told me was that the machine was fed extra ballots. And that's why I was six votes ahead of the person that came in third place. Well, if I'm six votes ahead of the person that came in third place at the end of the night, how do you lose 14 votes within a couple of days? Florida has had other issues with regard to ballot harvesting over the years. In 2005, Orlando Mayor Buddy Dyer was indicted on a felony charge of paying a campaign worker to collect absentee ballots before his 2004 election, along with three others on similar charges. The charges were dropped by the prosecutor, who said that none of the persons indicted had intended to break the law. In 2013, a ballot harvester in Hialeah received one-year probation as part of a plea deal after police said she collected at least 31 absentee ballots for the 2012 August primary election. While a felony charge was dropped, the woman pled guilty to two misdemeanor counts of illegally possessing more than two ballots from other voters. Isn't that incredible? It's not a conspiracy theory. Ballot harvesting exists all across the country. 2000 mules has not been debunked. This is how elections are run. This is why they have absentee ballots. This is why they have early voting. This is why they have mail-in voting. I imagine that most of you are old enough or live in places where to vote, you go in to the polling place on election day. They give you a blank ballot and you go in and mark the ballot. And then you submit the ballot for counting. At no point does that ballot ever go anywhere else. No one can collect extra ballots because the only ballots used are by people who go in to vote on election day and their address is checked. Their signature is checked. But we're told that system is complicated. That system is inefficient. So they put this system in place in order to expand the vote. And who do they say they're helping? It's always black voters. The Republicans don't want the black voters to vote. Really? How is that the case when Democrats for decades just systematically steal the votes of black Americans? This is exactly what the system is intended to produce. That's why it's set up this way and why it keeps producing the same outcomes. And now, once again, you have it described in full detail. And how does this keep happening? Well, we're never told about it in the media. That might have something to do with it. Does the regime control the media? Yes. Is the regime responsible for creating this system of widespread election fraud and election theft? Also, yes. But you're not allowed to talk about it. And in 2020, Twitter and Google and Facebook all made sure that these subjects could not be part of the public conversation. And now that that's going away, well, something has to replace it or else people are going to expose the whole system of election fraud. So what is it replaced with? Well, this is from Project Veritas yesterday. FBI whistleblower leaks documents showing agency targeting misinformation under election crimes ahead of 2022 midterm elections. Project Veritas published a newly leaked document today provided by an FBI whistleblower. The document details how the Bureau will tackle what they consider to be election crimes. It lists misinformation as a potential election crime, 
describing it as, quote, false or misleading information spread mistakenly or unintentionally. Well, that's a pretty expansive definition. Someone inadvertently saying something incorrect about elections could be charged with election crimes. The document also lists disinformation as potential election crime, describing it as false or inaccurate information intended to mislead others. And of course, we know the definition of misleading. It means that someone viewing that information is going to reach conclusions about that information that are inconvenient for the regime. It continues. Disinformation campaigns on social media are used to deliberately confuse, trick or upset the public. Oh, the public might be upset and that's a crime. These categories could raise questions about who gets to determine what is misinformation and or disinformation. Recently, the Biden administration attempted to create the Disinformation Governance Board under the Department of Homeland Security. After severe pushback from the public due to free speech concerns, the federal government pulled the plug on this idea. In another section of the leaked document labeled Things to Consider, the FBI reminded its agents that the First Amendment and Fourth Amendment exist. Both amendments are in the Bill of Rights and protect Americans' right to free speech and against unreasonable searches or seizures. The Bureau also flagged the potential for voter-slash-ballot fraud in this election, an activity that some have attempted to rule out as a threat to the American electoral system. So the censorship regime is breaking down. People are going to be able to freely share accurate information about widespread election fraud that does decide the outcomes of elections from the local level all the way up to the fake president of the United States. And how does the regime respond? Well, they attempt to make it a crime to share that information, a crime that the FBI is now being empowered to pursue. And we'll see if they follow through on this. I kind of doubt they will. But if they do, hey, maybe it's my time. But there is no way in hell I'm not going to continue to share information about the widespread election fraud and election theft that exists in this country. Elon Musk has said that the bird has been freed. And I guess we'll see about that. But if he's honest, if he's telling the truth, if he is committed to free speech in an open public square, the entire country will soon understand that election fraud is very real and that it happens and that it has happened over and over and over again. The regime is running out of options and they're running out of time. I'll be back on Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. 
linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!